This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Our scripture reading this morning can be found in the book of Luke, chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. Luke, chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter, enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Let's pray. Father, we approach you, uh, all of us, in, in great need in many ways. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our need, uh, to be honest uh, about our need, uh, to be honest about the fact that we uh, are sinful and find ourselves as, as deserving uh, to be cast out. But Lord, I pray that you would equally help us to see the the glory of your Son uh, and your grace for us. I pray that we would find uh, the answer to each of our needs in your Son, Jesus. I pray that as we uh, are all sitting here, uh, I pray that that those of us who have heavy hearts uh, would be encouraged by your word, and, and as we begin to see ourselves in our sin, that we would also see ourselves uh, as covered by the blood of your Son, if indeed our faith is in him. Lord, I pray that this morning as uh, your word is preached, uh, your Holy Spirit would be at work inside both the preaching and the listening. I pray that you would help us to be uh, encouraged uh, and and help us to to find um, our only hope in your Son, Jesus Christ, that one day uh, we may come and recline at table in your kingdom. Lord, we long for this. We look forward to that day. I pray that you would uh, um, bless the the preaching of the word now uh, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning, First Pres. It's a joy to be with you and excited just to be looking at God's word together this morning. Our text is found in Luke chapter 13. We're covering verses 22 through 30. And as we read those 
verses, as they've already been read to us, we see the fact that what Jesus is dealing with is something that most of us deal with on an everyday basis. And what I'm referring to is the understanding of what true faith really is. See, today, when people talk about faith, we hear a lot of things, don't we? We hear things like, well, this is what works for me. Or we hear, this is how I see it. The simple matter is that people believe whatever truth they want to believe, and they believe that that truth is what helps them. It's believed that ultimately it doesn't really matter what a person holds to. Think about that for a minute. It's believed today that it really doesn't matter what people hold to. The belief is that ultimately all roads lead to the same destination. That finding for me comes in conversations I have, not just with the people oftentimes out there, but even sometimes in here. And that's really the picture of what Jesus is dealing with. That Jesus is dealing with the covenant community. He's He's going to say some things that are going to get some people kind of angry as he moves through his journey towards Jerusalem. And if we've noticed anything, we notice that the Bible and historic Christianity are pushed against. That should be your experience, that you feel that pushback. People say things like, my God would never, I never he would never be so unloving. My God would never be so judgmental. My God would never send people to hell. If you haven't felt that push, I wonder what Christianity are you pushing? The reason I bring it up is because that's what takes place in this text. See, the truth is, our supposed pluralistic tolerant society isn't so tolerant, is it? There's a great deal of pushback regarding the historic Christian faith because it's viewed as being exclusive, narrow-minded. Today, there's a lot of room for a lot of points of view, a lot of perspectives, but there is no room for a truth that says there's only one way. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is pushing in our text. And that's why this is such a big deal this morning. The opportunity I have to preach this text excites me because this text is really about what we're all struggling with in this culture, a narrow door. Let's just take for a moment the background of what's been transpiring. If you've been with us for any amount of time, We've been journeying through Luke, and as we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, we come to chapter 9, and in chapter 9, there's this very real thing that takes place. Jesus actually says he turned his eyes towards Jerusalem, and he's marching to die. Why? Because Jesus is our only hope. And all through the rest of the gospel, as Jesus has his eyes fixed on Jerusalem to die, he's preaching. He goes to the synagogues. He goes to the villages. He goes to the towns, just like he does here in our text. Jesus is there in those towns and those villages, and he's declaring his kingdom. 
He's declaring his reason for coming. He's explaining that he is about to accomplish something absolutely amazing. And it's going to take place in Jerusalem on a cross. It's in the midst of all this that Jesus was asked a question. And this morning, as you see that question, I want you to look past the question to the heart of Jesus' answer. In verse 23, Jesus was asked, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And what's ironic here is that the questioner got caught up on numbers. And how often we get caught up on numbers. We get caught up on, on, on how many will be saved. Who, who's all going to be included in the kingdom? There's a couple things before we judge this question that we should notice. The first is that the person asking the question addresses Jesus as Lord. Look at verse 23. Lord, Lord, will those who are saved be few? That, that address says something about the person asking the question. It says that they're either a disciple of Jesus or they're at least trying to follow Jesus' teaching in some capacity. They're recognizing that Jesus is a unique teacher, but he's not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's a master. He's in charge. And so, coined with their question comes this introduction, Lord. We can assume then, because they're probably a disciple or at least wanting to be a follower of Jesus, that this question is a genuine question. And sometimes genuine people ask the wrong questions, don't they? And that's exactly what's taking place in this text. The wrong question is being asked. It's a question, though, that's been debated all through their time amongst different rabbis. There's been different points of view of how many would actually be saved. Some rabbis were more, held more of what we call a nationalistic view. They viewed that all Israelites would have their share of the world to come. That because they're born Jewish, man, they're going to experience heaven. Others had more a limited view, and they would say that the world to come was just for a few. But here's one truth all rabbis could agree with. No Gentiles were getting in. And that was the background to this question. It had been seeping around in the religious communities. Some were saying all of Israel will be saved. All of Israel, meaning that just because you're born Jewish, you're good. Well, others were saying, no, it's going to be limited. And so this individual comes to the forefront in Jesus' teaching, and he asks the question, Lord, Master, Will those who are being saved be few? But I don't want you to miss Jesus' answer because Jesus, in fact, ignores the question almost altogether. Cyril of Alexandria actually says Jesus is purposely silent to the useless question. I love that he calls it a useless question. <laughs> it wasn't helpful at all. It doesn't help us to know how many are going to be there. It doesn't strengthen our faith. It doesn't, it doesn't push us forward in growing. Jesus is purposely silent to this useless question. But Cyril of Alexandria goes on to say, but he does proceed to speak on what is essential. 
It reminds me of a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 29 where we read these words, the secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children. How often we spend all of our energy to know the secret things of God. We want to know why. Why is the biggest question we always want to ask? Why, why, why? But the secret things aren't for us. We're responsible for the things that have been revealed. And that's exactly what Jesus does in his answer. He doesn't answer the question of how many. That's a mysterious question, answer that only God knows. But he says, let me tell you what's really important. Let let me point to you to the truth that you really need to know. Let me show you what really deserves your attention. Look at verse 24, Jesus' response. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and won't be able to. See what Jesus did there? He just turned the question on its head. He said, you're asking the wrong question. You're concerned about numbers, and what I want you to be paying attention to is the importance of making sure that you're believing in the real one who holds salvation in his hand. And he uses this weird phrase, this idea of striving to enter. It's a question, I guess, as we start this morning, we need to ask ourselves, do I sense that I'm striving to enter? Or am I just really laid back about Christianity? Am I just really laid back about faith in general? Que sera, sera, man. Whatever will be, will be. Where are you at on this this spectrum of, of striving versus just being Whatever. Because Jesus seems to be pointing us that we should be striving. This should be of the utmost importance. This should matter to each and every one of us. That's what Jesus is saying. Not how many will get in, but about striving, striving to enter the narrow door. You hear the language Jesus is using? He's using some key words. He he uses this word strive, which actually means to agonize over. He said, man, I I thought Christianity was supposed to be helpful. Why would I want to go and believe in something that's going to force me to agonize? It's in the agony, it's in the striving that our faith is strengthened. And we all know that to be true because those of us that have experienced hardships, we know that through those hardships, our faith and trust in God has grown if we're truly trusting him. The difficulties of life do make us stronger. We don't always enjoy it. Nobody enjoys to agonize or or to strive. Those are hard words, but, but necessary words for our faith to grow. And what Jesus is saying here, ultimately, is we need to strive. We need to be agonizing. Jesus is emphasizing the difficulty to which we will enter the kingdom of God. The question he's saying isn't about how many... Anybody could be asking that. He's saying, no, I want you to focus your attention on getting in. See, that's really the crux of the question, isn't it? Because maybe the person who asked the question about how many was really just saying, I'd like to know that if I can just stop trying. (laughs) Like, if everybody gets in in the end, can I just pull back some? Can, Can I stop trying to work out 
and, 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 and follow and be so regimented in my life. Like, it'd be a whole lot easier if I knew at the end everybody just goes to heaven. I wouldn't have to pray every morning. I wouldn't have to go to church. I definitely wouldn't have to give some tithes and offerings, right? It would be just really easy. And so you can imagine that this disciple struggling a little bit to fully understand what Jesus has been teaching. And here Jesus gets right in his face and he points to his heart and he says, you need to strive. Jesus is really saying this is a heart condition. This is a heart condition. See, what Jesus is not saying is Jesus is not saying we earn our salvation. The reason we know that is because the Bible from Genesis to Revelation constantly reminds us that salvation is a gift. One of the most astounding verses is Ephesians 2.8 that says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. How many different ways could the Apostle Paul make it clear that you had nothing to do with your salvation? It's a gift. It's not your own work. It's grace. Three times he says it in a short verse to wake us up that salvation is a gift. And yet here Jesus is putting his finger in the heart of this man and saying, you need to strive. So Jesus isn't saying you earn. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the battle line is a matter of the heart. It's about what you do with me, Jesus says. That's the struggle. That's the wrestling. In Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus has a similar way of saying it there in Matthew's account. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Notice the struggle. And then John, the apostle, he's writing as he, he's talking about in his gospel the words of Jesus. And he quotes this time where Jesus was asked the question, what must we do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers, this is the work of God that you believe in him who sent me. Belief. That's the striving. That's the working. Belief. What do you do with me, Jesus says? How do I matter to you? Because see, Jesus, when he uses this illustration in Luke about striving to enter the narrow door, Jesus is making it abundantly clear he's the narrow door. After all, in John chapter 10, verse 7, he actually says, I'm the door. He wants us to understand he's the narrow one. It's through Jesus that we experience salvation. It's through Jesus that we are given hope. The battle, the struggle is about trusting Jesus. It's about trusting in Christ alone. Don't miss the word alone. It's not just believing in Jesus. This is trusting in Jesus alone. Trusting in Jesus' finished work. Not your own. It's in Jesus. The apostle Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, would later write in his Epistle, the first Peter chapter 2, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Notice what Peter's saying. He's saying, All allegiance to Jesus. Jesus is the one we hope in, Jesus is our Savior. 
Jesus is our healer. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The centerpiece of Peter's theology was Jesus. Like what one commentator says, he says, we're called to squeeze through the narrow door in faith and repentance. I love that. I just picture this little door, right? And you gotta get down and you gotta push yourself through and you're like, how do I do this? It sounds so works-oriented, but what Jesus is saying is, you have to come to terms with me. You have to humble yourself. Stop thinking so highly of who you are and what you do and get down on your knees and squeeze through the narrow door of Jesus. That's the key. This rustling, this striving is picked up by Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice the call to wrestle, to work, to strive, to agonize. I think many of us, we've either grown up in Christian homes or Christianity has just been something we loosely associate with and we begin to think that this is an easy thing. You believe in Jesus, you quickly go to heaven and that's not what all Jesus seems to be describing. Jesus seems to be pushing on this agony, this, this striving, this, this, this ultimate gruelingness that takes place. Look what he says at the end of verse 24. He says, many will seek to enter and won't be able to. And many will seek to enter but won't be able to. That is a very important statement. What Jesus is saying is that you will miss me. I'm the door. What each person does with me matters. Many will seek, but because they're offended by the narrowness of Jesus, they'll turn away. You say, well, how will they be offended by the narrowness of Jesus? Have you ever heard Jesus' statements? Pastor David led us in one during our prayer of confession, he said, he quoted Jesus, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but by me. No one. Absolutely no one. Exclusive. Jesus is saying, I'm the only way in. I'm the door, and I'm narrow. To get in, you must strive and agonize through me. Truth of the matter is we live in a very pluralistic time. It's preferred by many that this is offensive to hear such things. To hear anyone say that they and they alone are the way is unacceptable. And yet Jesus makes it abundantly clear that salvation is found in none other but him. He and he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And after making this startling statement that many will be striving and not being able to enter... He goes on to talk about how quickly the door is being shut. Look what he does. He doesn't even let it linger for a moment. He doesn't even let them rest in the agonizing. He immediately moves things forward. As in verse 25, he says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. 
And then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and we, we heard you teach in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evil workers. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see how quickly Jesus moves from the striving to the closed door? Jesus seems to be pushing the urgency of faith, the urgency of salvation now. Tomorrow's too late. Once the master of the house rises and shuts the door, all bets are off. But then Jesus says something horrifying to the crowd he's speaking to. In verse 25, at the end, he says, you, you begin to stand outside. You know who he's talking to when he says you? He's talking to the Jewish masses. He's talking to the Jewish masses and he's saying, you, you people who think you're saved because of your nationalistic salvation, you stand outside and you knock and you say, Lord, open up to us. Jesus is referring to the covenant people, the Jews. He's talking to those who, who, who understood all the heritage and blessing they had as being the people of God. And he's saying, you're going to be left standing outside begging to come in. And then notice what he says, the master says to them. At the end of verse 25 and again in verse 27, he says, I do not know where you're from. You know what he's saying? You're a stranger to me. You're a stranger. The second thing he tells them is not just that they're strangers, but they're workers of evil. They're unholy. At the end of verse 27, he says, you workers of evil. He defines who they are, those people outside the door, those who are barred from coming in. They're strangers who are working evil. And when they hear this, imagine their response, what they say as they pound on the door and as they want in. They say, we ate with you. We drank with you. We heard you preach. We're not strangers. You know who we are. You know exactly who we are, Jesus. Depart from me, you workers of evil. And then Jesus describes the place in the scene in verse 28. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because the doors are shut. In that moment, there will be crying, complete sadness, utter anger, and that will continue according to scripture for eternity. It's almost like they have a window to see in. They're, they're looking, if you will, into the house, to the kingdom, and they see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But then Jesus goes after it again, but he says, you yourselves will be cast out. <laughs> you catch that? He wants to make it abundantly clear. You yourselves will be cast out. You won't be in enjoying the fellowship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those whom the promises were given to, those who responded to in faith, those who received me, those who trusted my word. 
you yourselves will be cast out. Church, at this point, we need to stop and just absorb what's taking place. Jesus is talking to the Old Testament Jewish church. And this message to them serves as a warning to the visible New Testament church. Many today actually make the attempt to say, Lord, you know me because I attend church. Lord, you know me because I listen to your preaching. Lord, you know me because I eat and drink at the Lord's Supper. You know me. But Christ says to them, depart from me, you stranger, you wicked one. I never knew you. Can you imagine the weeping, the gnashing of teeth, the fury? What's the reason that these individuals are locked out, left out? They attended church, they, they, they ate and drank, they heard the preaching. What was the reason? Let me give you a word, syncretism. You say, well, what in the world does that mean? It means that they were actually merging Christianity along with other things. They were trying to make kind of their own mess, their own concoction of what it was to be saved. They had their own view of what worked for them. The Jews of old did this as they were taken over by other people and they would worship their idols and they would say, we'll merge their worship of idols with our worship of the living and true God. That's called syncretism. Well, guess what? We do that in the New Testament church as well. We merge our view of luck with Christianity. Luck, luck doesn't even exist. Luck isn't even a thing. And yet many Christians believe in it. Knock on wood. Yeah. It's funny but scary, isn't it? How we take things from the world and we, we mix it in with our view of Christianity. Or how about the view that, that if we do something wrong, we just need to do two or three good things to make up for it? It's a works-based religion, but we somehow mix it into Christianity thinking all's good. We miss the point that salvation isn't by what we do. It's solely in Christ. And just like those of old, there will be many in the church today who are knocking on the door wanting to know, why am I not allowed in? I've sang your songs. I've listened to your tunes. I've tithed in the church. I've even eaten the Lord's Supper. Depart from me, you stranger. You worker of wickedness, depart from me. Because they didn't strive to enter the narrow door. They had a convoluted view of Christianity. They lived in syncretism. To make this point, let me tell you a little story. I had a friend who was a businessman. He did a lot of traveling. And one of the places he traveled to was India. While he was in India, he, he obviously did a good job and, and he was greatly appreciated through the phone calls, the, the Skype meetings, and the visits to the country. So much so that one of the individuals that he was working with, who was an Indian, said to him, I really appreciate you. You're faithful. I want to follow your God. My friend was elated. He thought, man, I'm a great witnesser. <laughs> 
I must have the gift of evangelism. I didn't even say anything, and this guy wants to follow my God. Well, as conversations began to ensue, my friend quickly discovered that this individual was simply going to take the God of my friend, Jesus Christ, and add him to the pantheon of other gods he worshipped. Friends, how many do this in America as well? They mixed the Jesus of the Bible with a Christianity of their own making, assuming they're worshiping the living and true Christ. Lord, help us. Help the church. One of my biggest fears is that we're more concerned about being like the world than we are to truly follow the Christ of Scripture. We're so quick to mingle in the things of the world because they work rather than being faithful to Christ. And my fear is that there will be many on that last day that are locked out. In their confusion, they thought they were worshiping Christ, but they had their own view of who he was. Church, this isn't anything new. The church in the 20s and the church in the late 1800s wrestled with the same thing, and there were great debates about what to do with Jesus. The pursuit began to make Jesus look a lot like us. So they started to deny things like his deity. They started to get, get rid of things that were mysterious, like the idea of a resurrected body. They started to deny things like a blood atonement because who wants to believe in that anyway? And they preferred to follow a Jesus of their own liking. They pursued a Jesus who ultimately was just a good storyteller, a Jesus who was just a good example rather than a Jesus who came to die for sin. A Jesus who claimed to be the only way. A Jesus who said, apart from me, you have no hope. So church, I ask you a very important question. Where are you allowing a merging of the world with Christianity in your life? Where are you allowing emerging of the world with Christianity in your life? What are you construing Jesus to be like? This is a big deal. And that's why Jesus said, I'm not going to answer your question about how many because that's mysterious and you don't need to know that. But here's what you do need to know. I'm the narrow door, and you need to strive to enter through me. That striving means we need to wrestle with our theology. That striving means we need to wrestle with our understandings of what the Scripture says. Rather than simply going through life without a care, we should be students of the Word. We should be asking God to show us the truth and bending our knee in humility to his word and his guidance. Friends, in the midst of that devastating news that there are many who are in the covenant community 
that were left out, Jesus says something absolutely astounding. Look at verse 29. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. This should not be missed. What what Jesus is saying is that there is an inclusive invitation in this message of exclusivity of Christ. There's an inclusiveness in the fact that Jesus says people will come from all tribes, nations, and tongues. There, in the exclusiveness of Christ, there's an inclusiveness of people. Last week, we talked about the mustard tree that would grow so big that all the birds would begin to nest in it. And that was a picture of the growth of the kingdom. It's a picture of ultimately what Jesus talks about here from the east and the west, the north and the south. That God's people would be gathered from every nation, from every tongue, and every tribe. And the way in which they would be gathered was through the preaching of the gospel. For as the gospel goes forth, Jesus is proclaimed, and hearts kneel before him. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we read these words. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Notice that, all authority. Not some, not most, but all. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Again, every single nation and people and tribe and language. The importance of world missions is listed right there. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice the exclusivity of the triune God. They're coming into the kingdom of the living and true God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice the exclusivity of what they're to teach. Teach them to observe not most or not some, but teach all that I've commanded you. Don't leave anything out. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So friends, while the kingdom will be made up of every nation and tribe and tongue, every individual in the kingdom will be trusting in Christ alone. That's why we need to be sure to be preaching the truth of the gospel all over the world. Because the message of Christ is what saves. Ironically, at the very end, Jesus says what only Jesus can. He says, and behold, Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Scary part for me as a boy who grew up under the preaching of the word, a boy who grew up in the church singing the old hymns, a boy who grew up with godly men and women all around him, was to whom much is given, much is expected. I'm thankful that to know that there is hope, because it does say some. I grew up around the Christian faith, but I have to do business and strive to enter the narrow gate. I I need to anguish in my faith and wrestle to be sure that constantly I'm trusting in Jesus and not myself. And so do you. For to be in the kingdom means to be trusting Christ completely. So church, I ask you, are you trusting in Christ alone? Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door before it's too late. There's a famous hymn, and I want to read those words to you 
But this hymn accentuates the message we preach this morning. It's the words to the hymn in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, the agonizing. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave his, he arose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, praise God. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till my final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. How about you? Are you standing in the power of Christ this morning? Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage and are reminded of the narrow door that Jesus is, we're thankful for the door. As foreigners, as aliens, as sinners, as unrighteous, as the wicked, we have no right or claim of our own to the pure kingdom of God. But your great love has made a way through the gift of your son to this earth. We're thankful that he has come and he has lived a sinless life and that he has come to die for sinners such as us. God, may we never rob him of the glory of the work that he has done by thinking that we add anything to his finished work. May we cease our syncretism. May we repent of mixing the true Christian faith with our worldly garb. God, may we truly see the blessings that Jesus provides. May we hunger and thirst for him. May we agonize and wrestle and strive in our faith to remove those things that would hinder and remember that salvation is a gift. May we relish in Christ and be thankful for his service, his love, his death, and his resurrection. May we recognize the peace that he and he alone provides. And may we not fear a world that pushes back on the exclusive claim because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Thank you.
This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.